Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 201 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Mission Planning. Eight years ago, yesterday, the United States made the decision to land men on the moon and return them safely by the end of the decade. Today, at this moment, with the Apollo 10 crew safely on board the USS Princeton, we know we can go to the moon. We will go to the moon. That was NASA Administrator Thomas Paine shortly after the Apollo 10 crew returned to the Earth. Landing men on the moon raised national and international issues never before faced in space flight. In the past, an explorer had implanted his country's flag on a new soil to symbolize a territorial claim. When an astronaut raised the banner of the United States over lunar ground, would he be claiming the moon for the United States? Other symbolic acts and articles also prompted questions about man's first visit to the Earth's moon. What tokens should he take with him? What should he leave there, and what should he bring back? What memorable words should he say? and what ceremonies should be enacted. NASA public affairs officials were more accustomed to responding to queries than to using the high-pressure selling tactics of public relations promoters. But they realized that they would have to answer these new questions before they were asked. They also recognized that public interest in Apollo might wane after the first landing. Apollo 11 must therefore tell NASA's story aggressively while a worldwide audience watched and listened. In the end, NASA officials used only a 12-word list of the primary objectives of Apollo 11. Number 1. Perform a manned lunar landing and return. And number 2 perform selenological inspection and sampling. NASA officials had worked many years to be able to write these objectives for a single 
mission rather than a program. Ever since Apollo was named in 1960, groups scattered throughout the country had studied and planned the segments of that mission. Through 1965, this planning had helped design the hardware. I have a clip here from Eric Cohen, director of the Johnson Space Center, describing a key planning symposium held in 1966. You might not know, or you may know, serious studies as how to go to the moon began even before we did um, the first manned flight. When President Kennedy committed this nation to the lunar landing, we had only 15 minutes of manned flight experience. On June 25th through June 27th, 1966, this auditorium was packed with scientists and the technical community interested in the lunar mission. In the previous year, the program was baselined and a conference was held to put the total program in perspective so that all the participants could see how all the decisions previously had been made and what the total scenario of the lunar mission was. Over the following two years, there were a number of views by the so-called uh, President's Scientific Advisory Committee and the NASA Advisory Committee and many others, but they all came back to the, this scenario that we had laid out. In the final event, as the mission was planned, as, out, as we uh, flew it. During the 1966 symposium, many issues were discussed, such as why NASA had decided to go with lunar orbit rendezvous and the plateau approach to mission planning. Here's a clip of how the plateau approach worked. The notion of the plateaus goes something like this, that uh, when uh, one thinks about climbing a large mountain uh, in an energetic series of climbs, we pause, if we're smart, at, at the stable, convenient places or plateaus in climbing the mountain. Uh, and we do this on the way up as frequently as, as uh, seems prudent. And we pause again at the summit when we get there and reflect on what we've done and so forth. And again on the way back down, or if you go down the other side of the moon, you may even be on a different route entirely. It sometimes can be as difficult and risky or even more so coming down uh, than it was going up. So again, the plateauing concept applies coming down. And sometimes it takes, strangely enough, energy to bring you back down again, and it's a different set of muscles. In our case, a different set of engines. It said, it is useful to think of the lunar landing mission as being planned in a series of steps or decision points separated by mission plateaus. The, there are nine plateaus listed here. The nine plateaus listed were pre-launch, Earth orbit, translunar coast, lunar orbit, lunar module descent, time spent on the moon, lunar module ascent, lunar orbit before rendezvous, and trans-Earth coast. The decision to continue to the next plateau as you go down the list, one through nine there, uh, is made only after an assessment of the spacecraft's, actually in the early 
the first plateau, uh, the, going up from the first to the second plateau, it's the launch vehicle uh, is involved here as well, but after that it's entirely the spacecraft set of problems. So we had to come to understand whether we had the ability to function properly on the next and subsequent plateaus. And that's why we went to the plateau concept. It wasn't to simply get there and rest and take it easy. It was to deliberate in great depth to understand were we ready to proceed to the next one. If after such an assessment it is determined that the spacecraft will not be able to function properly, then the decision may be made to proceed with an alternate mission. Alternate missions, therefore, will be planned essentially from each plateau. Similarly, on certain of the plateaus, including lunar stay, the decision may be made to delay proceeding uh, to the next mission plateau for a period of time. In this respect, the mission is open-ended, and that's one of the buzzwords of the day. We went on to say that it will be convenient for purposes of overall mission description quickly to go through the mission plateaus and decision points. Following this gross description, the operations for each plateau were examined in greater detail. However, today we will forego the detail. The endpoints of these plateaus represent major commit points in the uh, uh, lunar landing mission, and uh, they're characterized by propulsive maneuvers. The way you got from one plateau to the next was by using some propulsion system, usually. And that is the plateau method. There were some unusual discussions at the symposium. For example, letting the S-4B impact on the moon. S-4B stage, where we're going to let it land on the moon. Uh, there were lots of controversies where people said, hey, we ought not to go around polluting the moon. And, and uh, other people had the notion that, hey, you ought to let it land on the moon so the scientific experiments on the moon could use it as a known mass, known velocity, impact, and come to understand some of the uh, uh, physics of the moon uh, with having this known object impacting it at a known time and so forth. And so it became, there were groups of people that were interested in A, letting it impact, and other people B, A, don't let that thing come close to it. And uh, we concluded that we ought not worry that much about it for this first mission. Let it impact if you if if you want. Actually, there weren't any experiments that I know of at the time that could have taken advantage of it. And subsequently, we did indeed let an impact. Moving on now, with the exception of rework caused by the Apollo 1 fire in 1967, the mission planners had analyzed the spacecraft capabilities and used this information to draft the most minute details of the flight plan, which appeared in final form on July 1, 1969, to be followed by Revision A seven days later. The flight plan was over 350 pages. Chris Kraft's flight operations team in Houston designed and evaluated most of the mission techniques when the lunar landing flight became the letter G on the chart of progressive steps to land the first men on the moon. Rodney G. Rose had already presided over 21 monthly meetings on how the crew would operate when it reached its goal. 
The Rose team held 20 more meetings before being satisfied that it had done all it could to smooth operations for what turned out to be Apollo 11. The 41st and final session was held in April 1969 after a flight operations plan had been issued to outline in detail the duties and actions to be performed at precise times. Rose's team served two specific purposes. First, its members were observers, acquiring and passing on information about the spacecraft, about flight crew operational procedures, tried and either adopted or rejected, and about engineering and development progress in qualifying the suit and the backpack for the lunar walk. Second, the committee served as a forum before which the mission planning and analysis team could air computer-checked trajectories and techniques that affected the interactions of hardware, crew, and fuel. Mission planners relied not only on theoretical plans run through the computers, but also on actual experience. Apollo 8, for example, needed only two periods of onboard navigation during translunar and trans-Earth coasting, rather than the ten previously planned for. I have a clip from Pete Frank, who was in charge of Mission Analysis Branch. Mr. Frank explains about the complexities of trajectories and launch windows. So uh, trajectory considerations really dominated uh, our mission planning activity, and it has to do with the uh, launch window determination. The injection uh, onto the uh, trajectory out to the moon occurred at a position about uh, like this on, on this side of the Earth, and I learned a new word in getting ready for this, and it was called the antipode. And uh, the antipode is that point here on the surface of the Earth that if you take a line from the moon and draw it through the Earth and where it pierces this side of the Earth, that is the moon's antipode. Well, we found out that the way to get to the moon on a fairly uh, inexpensive trajectory was to do the, the, the Hohmann-type transfer or make a, a burn at a perigee position. Uh, the actual trajectory that we uh, left Earth on was really a very highly eccentric ellipse. Uh, so that our, our first uh, plan or our problem on the uh, lunar missions was to get to this antipode position so that we could make our injection and, and head out toward the moon. When we got in the vicinity of the lunar gravity, where the, the, lunar's, uh, the moon's uh, gravity started becoming the dominant force, it actually pulled the spacecraft off of this elliptic trajectory and sent it in what was a hyperbolic trajectory around the moon. And so that if we did not make a, a maneuver here, we would have escaped and, and gone right on past the moon. Uh, we, we've already uh, discussed the free return trajectory, and, and I, I just want to make the comment that, that theoretically that is a... Uh, a result of injecting here at exactly the right conditions, but when you're adding uh, something like 10,000 feet per second to your velocity, and you need to make that uh, accurate to within a very small fraction of a foot per second in order to achieve this, uh, from a practical standpoint, it, was, it just couldn't be done, or you couldn't guarantee it. So uh, there was theoretically this free return trajectory, but in actual practice, uh, it, it wasn't something that we could count on. 
However, because uh, it was such a sensitive trajectory, it took very small mid-course corrections out here to bring it back into the free return, and that freed us up from having to guarantee that the service propulsion system uh, would work, because that was the main engine that was used from here on out. So our problem then was to get off of the pad at the Cape and rendezvous with this antipode, and that was another reason why Earth orbits were, were a, a big help, because they helped uh, give us a, a, a launch opportunity, a launch window. Uh, and at launching at a different times, you can see that we took different launch azimuths to pass over uh, the antipode so that we could do the translunar injection. Uh, the constraints on the launch azimuth, uh, due to range safety considerations, kept us from launching any further north of due east than 72 degrees, and any further south of due east of 108 degrees. So we had about a 36 degree spread of launch azimuth uh, that we could use in order to uh, provide us with a launch window as we were uh, targeting or tracking this antipode and the Earth's rotation. Now, as the antipode moves across, then we, as it approaches this point, then we could launch and, and meet up with it here. Uh, if we had some problem that we were holding on the pad and, and we could not get the launch off on time, then we could still uh, sit there in a hold condition and trace this targeting across here until it had got to this point, at which point the window closed because we couldn't, couldn't launch on azimuth down in here. Uh, this was on the order of a four-hour uh, time span here. So that if you just looked at this, uh, that the constraints of trying to get the uh, high, uh, highly efficient uh, trajectory to the moon, we had a, a two opportunities a day of each of about four hours in order to uh, uh, have a, a launch window. So that sounds really good. Uh, but that's only the first constraint that we were dealing with. But uh, so now our 24-hour day is, is uh, shrunk to a couple of four-hour periods or maybe it was Joe, I mentioned this uh, sun elevation constraint of uh, 7 degrees to 20 degrees. And for angles less than 7 degrees, uh, the shadows across the lunar surface would be too long and, uh, and would hide some of the, uh, the, the smaller craters and the boulders that we wanted the, the crew to be able to see and, uh, and not uh, land on. So we, uh, we were given a, a constraint of that the sun angle must be above seven degrees or it's, it's going to have too, much, too many shadows uh, for good visibility. Above an angle of 20 degrees, however, there was too much washout. There weren't enough shadows. And they would not be able to see the undulations and, and could possibly uh, touch down in a very awkwardly uh, sloping uh, part of the surface. So uh, a seven to 20 degree elevation at any given point time says that this band around the moon is the only place you can land on and see those characteristics, meet those conditions. Uh, and this uh, sunrise terminator here, this, uh, this is the, uh, the, the shadow of the dark side, and the sun being over here, it moves across the lunar surface at this uh, rate of about 15 degrees per day. So it says, you subtract that, you got 13 degrees, so on any any one landing site is probably or guaranteed to only be available to you one day a month. So now it's starting to really tighten down on what our launch opportunities were. 
Uh, this summarizes the launch opportunities for a, a set of sites that were, were just called Orbiter B sites. There was another uh, set that gave a different uh, uh, launch opportunity uh, uh, characteristics for the year. This is uh, for the year of 1969. Uh, Dr. Kraft threw another constraint in on us that uh, he didn't want us launching uh, before sunrise or after dark at the Cape, so that drew a, a line uh, here that cut off anything outside of those periods. So in January, we really had no opportunities at all. There was uh, some amount coming in in February, and then throughout the rest of the year, we had three days until you get into December again, uh, in which we could uh, launch. And it just so happens that in 1969, uh, these opportunities were all in the uh, Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean window. Other years, it worked out that they would all be in the Atlantic Ocean. Another issue to consider was contamination. As far back as Mercury, the crews had dumped any remaining fuel before landing as a safety precaution. So what should be done about the propellants in the lander's descent and ascent propulsion systems? Should one be burned to depletion before lunar touchdown and the other before redocking with the command module? Of course, the Apollo office objected to this. It would be safer for the lunar module pilots to land as soon as they reach the selected site rather than cruise around burning up fuel with the possibility that they might have to touch down in an undesirable site as a result. And it would be much better to go ahead and dock than to fly around until they were low on fuel and then find, if an emergency arose, that they had no way to return to the command module. Firing to depletion in either case would be a last-ditch action to ensure crew safety. Rose's team also helped Deke Slayton's support personnel decide how many lunar revolutions should be flown before undocking and descent to make sure a well-rested crew would land on the moon with the sun angle between 7 and 20 degrees for the best lighting. Apollo 10 supplied the answer to this question, but the planners and trajectory plotters could not set a specific flight path in concrete because of the possibility that delays could cause them to miss a launch window. Three areas of the mission demanded the toughest scrutiny by Rose, Bill Tyndall, and other mission planners. Descent, Surface Operations, and Ascent Judged by the sheer weight of paperwork, descent seemed to be the engineer's chief worry, yet nobody wanted to set mission rules so narrow that the crew could not land. Tyndall and astronaut Harrison Smith even discussed whether it was absolutely necessary for the pilots to see exact landmarks. A touchdown outside the targeted area might be quite satisfactory. They decided to leave the pilots some options, such as Quit and come home? Go another revolution and try again? Or don't worry about it and press on with the landing? Much of the concern about hitting a precise spot stemmed from uncertainties about trajectory dispersions caused by the moon's strange gravity fields. As more information was gathered about the mass concentrations, called mass cons, 
the landing analysis branch fed the data into computers for run after run trying to evaluate fuel use and the probability of mission success based on varying degrees of mass con influence on the descent trajectory. Tyndall's group also found guidance system faults that might result in unwanted excursions. Flight controllers would have to help the crew decide whether to go on or return to the command module. But returning to the mothership would be tricky, Tyndall said. Dispersions had to be severely contained to prevent the crew from flying an aimless trip across the lunar sky far out of range of the command module's rescue capability. Bill Tyndall was constantly looking for clear explanations of how to guide a spacecraft safely down to the moon. He discovered a good one written by George W. Cherry of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Tyndall arranged to have it reproduced and distributed to flight controllers, managers, and astronauts. Cherry numbered each step of the descent phase and outlined the guidance in finite detail, including how the spacecraft should react and what the pilots should do. Cherry said that during Program 63, the braking program, the crew should steer out of any errors in attitude. During Program 64, as the lander tipped over to give the crew a first look at the landing site, the thrusters that turned and tilted the spacecraft should be carefully checked to make sure they were working properly for the landing. From there to touchdown, programs 65, 66, and 67, a maze of procedures would take the pilots through the most critical step in the mission. When the Sea of Tranquility appeared the possible target for Apollo 11, Tyndall alerted planners to some unusual conditions in that location. Although the lunar module would begin its descent from an orbit station 18,300 meters above the mean surface of the moon, its altitude above the landing zone would be much less than that. Tranquility, he said, was 2,700 meters above the mean average and even more in its hilly area. So the landing approach would start low. Moreover, it would be uphill because there was a 1% upward grade in the direction of the flight path. These numbers, too, were fed into the computers to check the crew's responses as they flew the trajectories in the lunar module simulator. All through June and early July, memorandum and notes about descent propellant margins, use of guidance system, and even the views to be seen out the windows continued to flow. There were several lunar surface worries. What if the vehicle landed at an angle? That possibility did not concern the planners very much because the lunar module was designed to take off with as much as a 30-degree list. But the guidance system did not know that. In flight, the attitude thrusters fired automatically to keep the lander on an even keel, and they would do the same thing on the ground. But nobody wanted these engines to fire while on the lunar surface. The crew was told to cycle the guidance switches to the off and then to attitude hold to prevent the thrusters from doing their program job. The two hours after landing were critical. 
The pilots, who would act as their own launch crew, had to go through a countdown after landing to be prepared to leave the moon in a hurry if anything went wrong. They would do the same thing the last two hours before their scheduled departure. One crucial task in both these exercises was aligning the guidance system's inertial platform. Most mission planners agreed that the moon's gravity could be used for this reading. But Bill Tyndall worried that the lander might be so near a mass con that the alignment might be wrong and the lander might take off on an incorrect course. But the experts did not agree, stating that the mass cons should have no significant effect. Ascent from the moon also raised questions about trajectory dispersions. Fairly small deviations could cause the lunar module to crash back into the moon or miss the rendezvous with the command module. That was not as big an issue, however, as the possibility of a failure in the guidance system. The chances of the crews taking off in the lunar module and finding the command module would be extremely poor if all the guidance equipment failed. Planners had been studying manual takeover and steering of the lander even before Grumman was selected to build the lunar module in 1962. In 69, the computers were still grinding away, trying to find a satisfactory solution. The consensus appeared to be that controlling the lunar module manually was only slightly better than doing nothing. And a launch from the moon had to be exactly on time. If the crew fell behind in schedule, it would have to delay the launch until the command module circled the moon again. It was also important that the command module's path be precisely in line with the lunar module's ascent trajectory. The command module pilot was responsible for tasks such as altering the command ship's flight path, not just watching from his window. He would participate actively by keeping a close eye on the lunar spacecraft while it was on the surface, and by being ready to help deal with whatever contingencies the lander might encounter. To be prepared for any abort situation, the command module pilot had a cookbook of 18 different two-page checklists to cover all envisioned rescue operations. Landing, surface work, and ascent were going to be difficult, complex, and demanding tasks. George Miller, the manned spaceflight chief in Washington, had therefore urged in mid-1968 that the first lunar landing crew be selected as soon as possible. Salutations from the Sunshine State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 201 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11 Mission Planning. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that on the homepage, Space Rocket History. Dot com. Today, we salute 
the third most popular level of donors, the Mercury donors. There are 27 so far this year. Mercury donors give $20 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Mercury donors. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. During the trajectory clip, Pete Frank kept talking about the antipode. What is an antipode? I'm going to attempt to explain it. That doesn't mean it's going to work. (laughs) Antipode means the opposite of something. Think of it this way. Draw two circles, a large one for the earth on the left and a small one for the moon on the right. Now, draw a straight line from the left side of the moon circle through the earth circle and continue to the left side of the earth circle. The antipode will be the point that intercepts the left side of the earth circle. Admittedly, that was a little confusing. So, if you want to clear things up, visit the post for the episode on Space Rocket History website. And I have a picture there that may clear things up just a bit. Pete Frank wasn't kidding when he said that the trajectories were the most limiting factor on the Apollo 11 mission. There were restrictions on azimuth. They wanted to hit the free return trajectory. They wanted to make sure that the sun was between 7 and 20 degrees during the landing. Then there was the moon's daylight terminator, the landing sites that they had selected, and of course Chris Kraft at the end came in and did not want to launch in the dark. So, there were very few launch windows available during 1969. Pretty soon, all this mission planning will be put to the test. Do you think the mission planners have done a good job? We will find out together. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Jason C. from Australia donated at the Orion level. Thank you, Jason. Austin O. donated at the Orion level also. Thank you, Austin. Chris N. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket and moon emoticons, or emojis if you prefer. (laughs) Jaquin O. donated at the Vostok level. Ron B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. And Mike N. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. We are now at 101 Patreons. We're finally up to three digits. We reached 101 Patreons before episode 201. I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much, donors, for stepping up to that challenge. I really appreciate it. Now, the question is, can we maintain a minimum triple digits? Will we reach 150 Patreons by the end of the year? Hmm. Our overall number of donors is at 135 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who have not donated yet in 2017, it is not too early and it is not too late. Please keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-supported and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you're enjoying this content that I'm providing for you and can't afford to help, please consider doing so. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for $1 donations per month. So 
sort of like a voluntary subscription. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. Second year donors receive the coveted rocket emoji, third year donors receive the treasured moon emoji, and fourth year donors receive the sought after satellite emoji next to their name on the donors list. I was pleased to see the podcast receive several new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I would like to thank the JSO, G. Krantz. Hmm. You think it's really Gene Krantz? Hmm. (laughs) Ravage Soul 27. And the next one, I'm really at a loss of how to pronounce that. E-I-U-R-H-D-N-D-H-E-I-E. Thank you very much. I just didn't want to blow the pronunciation, so I didn't say it. I spelled it for you. Thanks so much for doing the kind reviews and and the all-important five-star rating. There were two anonymous ratings, and I want to thank whoever did that as well. really appreciate you taking the time to give the podcast the five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. I'll recognize the retweeters at the end of the month. And this is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will have an encore episode, our first one of 2017, as I will be in Titusville to spend the week at the... the Kennedy Space Center. I bought a annual pass and I'm going to take full advantage of it next week. The week after next we will continue with Apollo 11 and it will dominate the schedule for quite some time. I plan on giving a very detailed coverage of the most important mission yet. In podcast news, I want to thank everyone who participated in last week's Tang ceremony. Mrs. SRH and I both had a Really good time doing that, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Now, a word for new listeners. The question comes up occasionally, how do I select what I cover in each episode of the podcast? This is how it works. The podcast is a timeline. In 2013, I started with episode one that occurred in ancient time, and now, four years later, I have progressed to the year 1969. For each year, I try to cover the most significant events that occurred. So it is a sequence of events. After I covered 1969, I plan to move on to 1970, etc. Okay, hope that's clear. In podcast news also, uh, February was a good month for downloads. I think it was the fourth or fifth highest month so far. In February, the podcast was downloaded by 98 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries. U.S., Germany, returns to the second position. UK drops to three. Australia, Canada. Sweden continues at sixth place. New Zealand jumped all the way up to seven. France moved up to eight. Ireland dropped down to nine. And Brazil came in at number ten. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. In personal news, as I mentioned before, I have made it to the Sunshine State and I'm trying to see a launch in person. I was going to uh, last week, and they rescheduled the March 8th launch. So early on Tuesday morning of this week, actually about midnight, we traveled to see the Falcon 9 Echo Star launch that was going to go off at 1.34 a.m. 
in the morning. It was about an hour and 15 minute drive from the campground I'm at. And uh, we got there and picked out a, a space to park the truck on the causeway. And I got so excited. I had the truck parked so I could see the launch out of my windshield. No one was in front of me. It was perfect. I could see the vehicle assembly building too. And then, bad stuff started to happen. My wife opened the door on the truck and the wind pulled it out of her hand. And my first thought was, oh no, it's going to be too windy to launch. Then, a very nice police officer came up and told us that we couldn't park there. We had to get off the causeway. And by the way, the launch has been scrubbed. <laughs> so I went from elation to frustration in about three minutes. We got back to the campground about 3 a.m. SpaceX is going to make another attempt at this early morning launch. It's going to be on Thursday at 1.35 a.m. And there's a Delta IV launch scheduled for Friday evening. So hopefully one of those will fly. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. Keep in mind, next week will be an Encore episode, and then episode 202 will be up the following Thursday. So long for now. <laughs>